0: morning. It's good to see y'all again from the first service. And uh, those of you who've joined since then, I'm really glad that you're here as well. It's been a great privilege for me to be able to be here and to share the Lord's Word with you, to encourage you in your own personal faith and your own discipleship. During the first hour we talked about uh, in the Sunday school time this calling that we have to make disciples of all the nations, and we also spent some time um, looking into how uh, we might wrongly diagnose what's wrong with the discipleship problem in churches, and then how we might rightly diagnose that. And then I talked how we would jump in this service into uh, understanding our call to discipleship And then take a really good look at what we're up against and why we might not be making disciples the way that we ought. So I've handed out an outline. I think you've received it. I hope that will be a help to you. Um, Let me get my Bible here. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1 and read together the Lord's Word and then pray together over his word. I'll go ahead and uh, pop this up on screen. There we go. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 27 through 29. Colossians 1 such a beautiful beautiful text about the glory of Christ and and Paul steps in and says these words beginning in verse 27 God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature In Christ, I labor for this, striving with His strength that works powerfully in me. Father, I pray that as we read and consider Your Word today, that there would be a work in us that would move us toward making disciples, Because the Lord Jesus is worthy. Because the journey of following him is worth it. And because the job of making disciples is the most worthwhile job you could give us. So grant a grace to us that we do not have of our own ability. That we may become very good disciples. And that it would be done with a humble spirit to bring glory to you through Christ, empowered by your spirit. We believe that you can do this. That's why we've gathered. It's why we've sung. It's why we're praying. It's why we've read. Because we've come to you to worship you in spirit and in truth and to be empowered by you to do the things the spirit leads us to in truth. So open your word up to us today. We are utterly and completely dependent on you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. One of the challenges uh, that we find in discipling others is trying to figure out why we're not very good at it. Why we don't do it the way that we ought to. Why we don't evangelize as we should, why we don't teach as we should, why we don't do the things of the one-anothering that discipleship entails in the way that we ought to. And so, today what I want to do, following up on what we shared this morning, is to drill down into the depths of Colossians 1, and, and really we're just going to ask a series of questions. And hopefully get some answers to those questions. And at the end, maybe reveal something to ourselves about why we're not obeying some very simple yet very serious commands of the Lord Jesus. This is our job description from Jesus. This is a part of our identity in Christ. We do as Christ did. We make disciples. And we do that for three primary reasons. The first reason is because Jesus is worthy of every single person on earth. Following Him and giving Him the honor and the glory and receiving from Him the joy and the significance That Christ alone deserves and can give. So he really is worthy. And working that down into our hearts is a daily exercise. It's a part of the spiritual disciplines. As we introduced Matthew to ourselves this morning and in chapters one, two, three, and four, Matthew packs the first four chapters of his gospel, simply with the worthiness of Jesus. And we learn that he points us to behold Jesus as the king, the eternal king, the long-awaited king, and that he is to be, held, be beheld as savior, the one who delivers us out of the domain of darkness and transfers us into his kingdom And by His life of sinlessness and His death sacrificially on our behalf, and by the power of His resurrection, He imparts life to us, and He is utterly and completely worthy. Therefore, if we follow Him, we find out that the journey is worth it. When Jesus told parables, many, if not most of the parables, had this idea of a moment of accounting with rewards attached. And that those rewards were pictures of what it is like to receive the blessing of eternal life and to behold His glory. To see Him in all of His magnificence and to worship Him. And so the journey of following Him is worth it when He says, enter through the narrow gate and go down the hard way Because it leads to life, he's saying, it's worth going through the narrow gate and going down the hard road because of what you actually arrive at. And that is life. And so it's a beautiful picture. And then this job of making disciples is worthwhile. We shared in the earlier hour a thought about Christ. Here's the Son of God, God taking on flesh, second person of the Holy Trinity laying aside all of his glories and born in the manger and lives this beautiful, perfect, sinless life on our behalf, never succumbing to temptation and the trickery of the devil, always giving glory to his father. And then he has a three-year ministry. And the one job that he commits himself to during the three years of ministry is making disciples. So that means that that job must be really, really important. It's not the only thing he did in those three years, but it's the primary way he used his time was making disciples, preparing these men and women to take his message of salvation to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And so we think, and at Kingsville we try to work this into the DNA of who we are, that we make disciples. That's who we are and what we do because Jesus is worthy, because the journey of following Him is worth it, and because the job of making disciples is the most worthwhile job that we might ever take part in. We even tried to work it into our logo so that we kind of think of ourselves in a very particular way. What do we do at Kingsville? Well, we make disciples. Who are we? Well, we're the people who make disciples disciples. So here is that call that God has given us to go and make disciples of all the nations. So jumping into Colossians 1:27 through 29, let's ask and answer a few questions. Number one, what does God want known? What does he want known? Now you think about, there's so much to know about God. There's so much to comprehend. Being an infinite being as He is, with infinite power, there's more to know about Him than we can comprehend that needs to be known. Yet, He has this thing that He wants made known, this particular thing. So, what is it? Well, the first part of it is the wealth of the mystery. There's some kind of a storehouse of glorious riches in the person of Christ Jesus that is the thing that God wants you to know about. He wants you to know the glorious wealth of this mystery. This is what God wants you to know. This is what God wants the nations to know there's something. Now, I want you to think about Ephesians chapter 2, where it has that great passage. It says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the prince of the power of the air. And he goes through all of that thing and he says, but, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus And then it says, and he seated you in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he says this, in order that in the ages to come, you might comprehend the riches of his grace to you in Christ Jesus. What God wants you to know is that there's this wealth of glorious grace in Christ that is greater than the wealth all the nations. It's greater than the wealth of Bill Gates. It's beyond our comprehension and it's offered to us freely in Christ. And so the job of the discipler is to begin revealing the wealth of the glory of Christ beyond our comprehension. But God also wants made known the work of the mystery. Not just the wealth of it, that it's there for us and being given. The inheritance of Christ is going to be co-inherited with us and we're going to inherit the gift of God Himself. That is the gospel, God giving Himself to us. But He wants us to know the work of the mystery, which is Christ in you. That God is doing a very unique, particular work in you. By Christ dwelling in you, And making you like himself. So that he will be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ in you is working now to conform you to his likeness. It's what he's doing in you. It's how he's carrying out his mission in you is he's making you like himself. And so God wants that known. And then he also wants known the wonder of the mystery. What is the wonder of the mystery? It is the hope of glory. If you haven't read it, I want to recommend a little booklet by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. It's, you can get it on a PDF online or you can buy it uh, as a Kindle book or buy it as a little pamphlet. And it's simply called the weight of glory. And it's a very good covering of the concept of the glory that is to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. That something's coming that can only be described as the hope of glory. That whatever thing you've ever experienced in your life that was a moment of glory... I don't know if you've ever had a moment of glory where either you experienced the glory of another and enjoyed it or you yourself received some kind of honor and you enjoyed it. But whatever that was like is only a tiny little hint, a little bitty foretaste of this moment that we are waiting for when no matter what you've been through on this earth and how life has been, it will have been Because the glory will be beyond all comparison. In fact, when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, really it's chapter 4 going into chapter 5, where he talks about that our present struggles are producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So what God wants known is he wants known The wealth of the mystery of Christ. The work of the mystery of Christ. And the wonder of the mystery of Christ. That these are the things through the word and through the preaching and through the teaching and through the sharing of the gospel, we're letting people in on the most wondrous story ever and the greatest experience that anyone can ever have. And that is to behold His glory. Remember in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus is praying, and this sounds so conceited. And the only way it can, can, can not be conceited is if it's true. But he's praying, and he's asking the Father. He says, Father, what I'm asking for is that those you have given me may be with me. Does anybody know what comes after that moment? That they may behold me. My glory. Now, if you said that, like Wes as a model, if you if you thought in any way that Wes was serious this morning when he was being self-deprecating in that moment, you would have immediately said, Oh, Wes, he needs some help, don't he? He's kind of vainglorious, all right? if somebody said that the best thing that could ever happen to you is that you see their glory, you would think that they would be personally sick. But when Jesus says it, He's saying the greatest thing that you could ever do is to freely behold His glory now unstained by sin in your own heart and set free to behold Him in all That's what the book of the Revelation reveals. It's not revelations and it's not revealing the end times. It is the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. And when He is revealed, everybody's singing and praising and glorifying Jesus. And so the wonder of the mystery is that we shall behold Him in all of His glory. That should be the fundamental longing that we're after in every human heart. This this should be what we're aiming for. This is why in the end of the book of the Revelation, John could say honestly, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because John wanted to see him in all of his glory. Remember, John was among the three that got the little slice of glory on the transfiguration. And it says that his garments were changed and it was like lightning. It was so bright. He just gets this little bitty hint, but in his present form, he couldn't behold the fullness of the glory. And John says, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Why? He's ready to behold him. So, having worked through that, And really wanting to camp there the rest of the day. Here we go. All right. To whom does God want this made known? In other words, who needs to know this mystery of this wondrous wealth and work, of this wondrous hope of glory? Who needs to know it? Who is God after in this revelation? Well, he says it among the Gentiles. Now, this is an interesting phrase. So we're going to kind of dig in a little bit. I have a friend that, that teaches Bible very well in our church, Jason, and he says we're going to get into, we're going to geek out over the Greek. Uh, I don't do that very often, but this is worth a little bit of our time. Now, something happened in the transition over, so you have to forgive this. It uh, actually, that question mark little thing shouldn't be there. So just pretend that question mark's not there. How many of you have ever heard the word ethnic or ethnicity? Have you all ever heard that word? Most of us have heard it. Well, here's where we get it from. The word Gentiles. Intois ethnesin. Okay? Among the Gentiles. In their midst, basically, is, is what it's saying. Now, this word, ethnicity, means language group people group, cultural group. It doesn't mean nations like boundaries of international boundaries like United States, Canada, Mexico, Zimbabwe. That's not what it means. It means people groups who share a common culture and a common language. It's their ethnicity. It is partially racial in the sense of they're unique in maybe their bloodline, but it's cultural and it's linguistic. Now, you'll see those two words there, ethne sin in the Greek, or ethne we kind of smooth it out in English, because we've seen it before. We heard this same word when we heard take the gospel to all the nations, pantata ethne. Same word. In other words, it's translated Gentiles in, uh, in our passage there in Colossians, it's translated nations. In Matthew, it means every people group. God desires the wonder, the work, and this magnificent wealth of this mystery to be proclaimed to everyone. That's our job. And so, Paul, in this passage, says we're doing the same thing here that Jesus commanded in Matthew 28. We're getting the wealth of the mystery of Christ, the work of the mystery of Christ, the wonder of the mystery of Christ. We're getting that to everyone. So now we have to answer this question, to whom did God give the task of making this known? And this is where it gets uncomfortable. Up until this point, it's like, yeah. But now, he's going to slim it down, and he's going to use some words to help us identify Who's responsible for this job? I don't know if you've ever uh, seen some kind of uh, job go bad. And when it goes bad, everybody starts looking for who's responsible. Several years ago, you remember when that hotel collapsed down in New Orleans? It was a horrible tragedy. Well, the first thing they go looking for is who's responsible for this mess? Who's the worker? Who's the foreman? Who's the contractor? Who's the builder? Who's the architect? They're looking for the people responsible because there's going to be some accountability for this. And so when we ask why don't the nations know the wealth of the mystery of Christ? Why don't they know the work of the mystery of Christ? Why don't they know the wonder of the mystery of Christ? Why Who's responsible for this mess? Paul's going to say, we are. Notice who Paul lays this on. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so he says, we. When Paul says we, who's he typically mean? Us, the church. The the ones who have responsibility for making disciples of all the nations, it's not the International Mission Board, it's not the pastor, it's not the elders, it's us, the church. We have the wealth of the mystery. The work of the mystery the wonder of the mystery we we have that in Christ and we are the ones who have this job of making this mystery known to everyone to every ethnolinguistic people group on earth that's our job so when the end of time comes and Accountability comes. There's going to be a, an accountability for the church for her responsibility in this work. So we've kind of worked through some questions. Um, what does God want make known, made known? To whom does He want to make it known? Who did he give to whom did he give this task? Uh, we, we we're at this. And, and so now he's going to say, how? Because maybe right now you're going, okay, I'm in. I'm in. How how can we do this? I I accept the responsibility. It is my responsibility, whether it's my own child, spouse, parent, sibling, neighbor, co-worker, or the nations. Okay. I accept it. I own it. Now, I, I will say that's a healthy place. A few years ago, we had a problem in our church, and it caused some confusion about uh, some building stuff that we were doing, and some pricing and negotiation and things that were going on, and And so we had a man come to meet with us, and when he got there, uh, it had affected him, and he was very upset, and the person who had made the wrong decision and move was me. And so the very first thing I said after we prayed and started a meeting, I said, I just need to tell you, I'm responsible. This little mess up right here, it's me. All the other people in this room, it wasn't them. I made this decision, and I was wrong. And I brought the problem on us, and it was me. And I can remember that guy immediately relaxing and going, I can can work with that. Good. What are we going to do about it? The goal here is not to produce some kind of guilt that will lead you to one evangelistic adventure so that you can relieve your guilt and go on about the rest of your life. That's that's not what we want. Guilt is not our right motivation for this. Getting to the place where we say, it's not about the guilt, it's about the responsibility. I'll take the responsibility. It's mine. Let's go to work. Let's find a solution. So how are we to make this known? Well, let's let's see. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So let's break that down. First thing, we proclaim Jesus. I know that just really sounds simple, but we don't proclaim church. It's easier to proclaim church than Jesus. Hey, come visit our church. Hey, come come worship with us sometime. I'm not against that. Inviting people to church is great, but that's not fundamentally what we're called to do. We're called to proclaim Jesus. He will never fail. The church, a local church may fail, but Jesus will never fail. So we proclaim him. That's our first thing that we do. We proclaim Him. So that needs to be the centerpiece of our conversation. We're revealing the glorious wealth of the mystery of Christ. We're revealing the work of Christ in you. And we're revealing the mystery of the wonder of the glory to come. so, So we have to focus on Christ. He's the centerpiece of our conversation. He's the one we're moving the conversation to. He's the focal point. So we proclaim Him. We also warn everyone. My brothers and sisters, everybody's going to give an account to God, whether they like you or not, whether they like Baptists or not, whether they like Crosspoint or not, whether they like Jesus or not. They are going to give an account to God. They need to know we need to help them get a mindset that they're actually going to stand in the presence of the living God and give an account of their soul so we warn everyone notice what he says there we proclaim him warning everyone this doesn't mean warn the agreeable people warn the christian people warn the nice people it's that we warn everyone it's an everyone word we warn We want our children growing up in the course of their life, getting ready to stand before the Lord, warning them, you know you're going to give an account to Jesus. We want our spouses, we want our siblings, our parents, our grandparents, our grandkids, we want our neighbors in the nations, we want to warn them that they're going to give an account to God. And that's going to be the most important moment that they'll ever face. We also teach everyone. The gospel is a set of true information that is explained to a person. There's this giant scope of the gospel that is Genesis 1-1 to the very last word in Revelation. But then there is the very specific that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and he was buried. And he rose on the third day according to the scriptures and was seen by over 500 believers. That's the heart of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins. So we proclaim him and we warn, but we teach, we inform with information, we pass that on, the truth of the gospel of Christ. So it says, warning and teaching every. doesn't mean just teach our kids or just teach the students. It means teaching all the folks that we encounter in life about Christ. And then finally, we equip. Equipping is the imparting of wisdom for usage. We're not just giving them information to store. We're giving them the very wisdom of God. Christ, the Bible says, is the wisdom of we're giving, equipping them for a response to God. To say yes to Him and His work of His Spirit. Convicting and converting our hearts. So we do so by equipping them with the wisdom of God who is Christ. So we proclaim Him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. This becomes a focal Verse of the work of the church. Okay, so why are we to make this known? Let's get to that. Why? Why would we do this? Now, you could fill this with answers, but there's a why, a twofold why, actually included in the text. Its first part is in the beginning of the verse. God wanted to make known. So the first why is to please God. Do you know that it pleases God for the nations to know the wealth, work, and wonder of the riches of Christ? That pleases Him. When you sit down with a neighbor, a grandchild, a spouse, a parent or grandparent, when you sit down with someone in another nation and you go out, to other ethno-linguistic ethno-lingu- groups and you have a translator and you make known to them or you learn a new language to make known to them, this pleases God. There ought to be running deep in every one of our hearts right now a desire to please God because He is so good and to be pleasing to Him in all respects, as the Bible says. So the first is to please God, but the second is to present them. Now, this is a beautiful picture in the Bible. There's this moment. It's as if Paul has this opportunity that everybody that he led to Christ, he gets to take them and he needs, gets to go to the Lord and say, here they are, Lord. Remember when you sent me to Philippi? Remember, Lord, when you beat they beat me and threw me in prison? Remember when you shook the prison with the earthquake? Remember when the guy got his sword and was about to kill himself, the jailer? And I said, no, 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 we're all still here. Remember when this guy said to me, brethren, what must I do to be saved? Remember, Lord, I told him right then and there, the glory of the mystery of Christ Jesus. And it's as if there's this moment of presentation. Here's my child that I grew up and I raised in my family. And I led them to know and love Jesus. And on that day, I'm presenting my daughters to the Lord saying, Lord, you gave them to me for a number of years. Here they are. They're they're mature in Christ. That was part of my job. There's this sense that Paul has here of a moment of presentation where you're basically saying, God, this is what I did with the time you gave me. I got people ready for this minute. That's what I did with my time. Now think about what that moment will be like. Because Paul's got it running through his mind. He's he's got it going that I may present everyone. Paul's got his eye on the nation's. I think that's why he was so effective. He's got his eye on the everyone. He doesn't have his eye on just the one. It's good to pick one, and I love the who's your one evangelistic emphasis. I think it's great, but Paul had his eye on the nations. He wanted to present everyone complete in Christ. That was just a heartbeat. That's what made him long for the salvation of his brethren in Romans 9 and 10, where he could say, oh Lord, if I could present them by taking their penalty myself and being accursed to get them able to be presented and ready for you. I'd I'd trade with them in a minute. And so there's this idea here of presentation to present them to God, to please God, and to present them to God. I think that in all moments in eternity, this one maybe one of the highest and most important that we could ever imagine in our life the moment that we get to show our work remember when you um you had math problems and the teacher knew that sometimes that you really just could guess the answer really well and they would give the math problem and they would say give it the answer and then off to the side it would say please show your work in other words, you had to write all the equations out and all that. There was that moment of accounting that you really knew how to do what you were uh, being taught to do. This is the moment of accounting. You've been called to make disciples. Will you have a disciple to present on that day? Will there be somebody you can say, Lord, you gave them to me and here they are. And so this idea... now before you get too caught up in your own self and you start running all the great sovereign doctrines of God through your mind going, I think he's putting this too much on humans, I want you to see what came right before this passage in Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Guess who's working through you? You see this whole Christ in you mystery? Guess who's working through you to present these people to his Father? Once you were alienated, hostile in your minds, uh, expressed in your evil actions. But now, He, Jesus, has reconciled you by His physical body, death, through His death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before Him. Guess who's working with you on the presentation? He is. Jesus is in you. And He's working with you to make this presentation. So on that day... It's not like you're getting all the credit. This is not show-off day. This is the mystery of Christ in me was at work on this day when I told this person, what does Paul do when he gives glory for people getting saved? He always gives the glory to Christ. Always. So, this presentation that's going on is happening. Now, I want you to consider... And I'm going to try to wrap things up here. I want you to consider a little bit different definition of a disciple. Now, Mark Dever has a great definition of disciple, uh, giving spiritual aid to another person, spiritual help to another person. And I noticed y'all had that book in the back. It's wonderful. There's probably 50, 11 great definitions of a disciple because it's such an expansive idea. But I want to narrow it down for a moment. And I want to give you this one. And I want you to take it home and kind of chew on it. It's, it's not perfect because no definition of disciple is absolutely perfect because it entails so much. But, but I want you to think of this one and write it down. One who is ready to give an account of his or her soul to God. That's what I want to, when I want to think about what I want to do with a person to disciple them, I want to get them ready for that moment. That's how I want to see the discipling process. I want to take this person whether it's my neighbor who doesn't know the Lord and I need to share the gospel, my child who's just been born into my family, my spouse who I found out uh, along the way. We married. We were not uh, uh, believers. I became a believer. My spouse isn't a believer yet. Or my parent, I got saved. My my parents aren't saved. Or I've got grown children who I didn't share the gospel with because I didn't know the Lord. Uh, All these people that are with us, what I want to think about is I want to get them ready. That's what I want discipleship to be. Is getting them ready. Now that that, and what the reason I like this definition is because it fits so many different situations. My neighbor who doesn't know the Lord needs a little bit different discipling than my daughter, who's 30, who knows the Lord, but I need to disciple both of them. But both of them, I'm doing the same thing. I'm simply trying to get them ready to give an account of their soul to God. So if we adopt this idea, then when we look at a person, we start thinking not about anything else in their background, their history, their belief system. We start looking at a person, we single this person out and we say, hey, this person, I'm going to pick Myra over him. Mean, what am I going to do to help Myra get ready to stand before the Lord? What's my job in that? And so we begin thinking differently and we focus. And therefore, being discipled is Being helped to get ready to give an account to God. I dare say the reason that we do not easily pray, even so Lord Jesus come quickly, is we're not so sure we want him to show up today. We got some stuff at the house probably needs taken care of. Stuff in our heart that needs taken care of. Stuff on our hands that needs taken care of. Stuff in our head that needs taken care of. In other words, it's likely every one of us needs some kind of discipling to get ready for the moment to give an account to the Lord. So being discipled is being helped to get ready to give an account to God, and discipling is helping others get ready to give an account to God. So I want to close with this, and this is the hard part. No, this last part wasn't the hard part. It sounded like it, but this is the hard part. Because the bottom line is, why aren't we doing a great job at making this known? I mean, let's be honest, we're not. Our own nation is in terrible spiritual condition, and the rest of the nations too. Now, I'm not saying we all go out and fix the world. That is not what I mean by that. But I can tell you that I really genuinely don't believe that there are very few churches and believers who are really focused their lives on the main task of making decisions. question is why why aren't we doing a great job at making this we've got all the reasons to we know that jesus is worthy we know that the journey is worth it we know the job is worthwhile we know god wants it known we know he wants it known to every group of people on earth we we know all this we know that christ is in us we know that it's a wealth of of incredible glory we know all that but then we walk out the door and we go to lunch and everything's just like it was before why It's simply this word. It's inertia. I'm going to give you two definitions for inertia. One is for the people like me and the other is for really smart people. Okay? So let's do the really smart people. A property of matter by which it continues in its existing state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line unless that state is changed by an external force. In other words, this is what it means. A tendency to do nothing or remain unchanged. All right? So back it up to the smart one. It's a property of matter by which it continues in its existing state. Whatever state you're in right now of not evangelizing and not making disciples, you're in that state because that's the state you want to be in. And you can't blame anything else. You have to take responsibility for the condition of your own soul your own heart, your own work. You have to take that on yourself and say, the reason I'm not evangelizing is me. It's me. The reason I'm not making disciples, it's me. It's me. And I'm that way because that's the way I've wanted to be in some place in my heart. I wanted to be here and that's how I got here. And unless some force acts upon you, you're not going to change. You're not. You you can get all the discipleship strategies and, and programs and structures you want, but unless you let a force greater than you act on you, you're not going to change. So, back to the simple definition, tendency to do nothing or remain unchanged. In other words, if you're sitting still, you're going to want to sit still unless something moves you. I mean, it's it's just, you know this, it's, it's inertia. This thing's sitting here, but it, some force acts on it, it gets moved. And so, the force acting on it and moving it gets it in motion. We're stuck. Many of us are stuck not making disciples because that's where we want to be. And we're stuck there. And we need something, someone greater than us to move on us. And so the inertia and the other thing is some of you it's not just that you're stuck you're actually headed in a direction and it's not a good one be honest you've been headed in a direction for a little while it's not a good one and that's that motion in a straight line unless that state is changed by an external force Some of you are headed in a direction, it's not toward God, it's not toward Jesus, it's not toward faith, it's not toward good, unless something acts on you, you're going to crash. It's going to happen, believer or not. And so, inertia is the problem. So, the first problem is my inertia. Long before I deal with the inertia of other souls, there's the my inertia problem, I need God to move me, and I need to ask Him to. I need to get on my face and say, Well, I'm stuck, or I'm headed in a bad direction. And I need a power greater than me to act upon me. And what is so great is we're going to see in the verse in just a minute that power's there. It's not lacking. Christ in you, the hope of glory, He's there, and He has all power. The Bible says he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has power for your change. The other problem you're going to run into is once you get your inertia square, to disciple somebody means to take on their inertia. They're headed in a direction they need to be redirected from, or they're sitting in a place they're stuck in and they're going to have to be moved. And you're going to be part of the work of the Spirit and Christ to get things moving. Or change direction in their life. So it's their inertia. So watch how Paul does this. And I'm going to give you a picture at the end. I hope it encourages you and not discourages you. But Paul says, I labor for this. This is my work. Striving with his strength. Now this is where we get the inertia. The striving word was a word that came out of a certain event so, how does Paul describe the work to be done against the inertia of fallen humanity, whether it's yours or that in a person you want to disciple? Paul used this word. This is the word he used it means to wrestle with an opposing force, a tough, exhausting, opposing force. He uses the word agony. Agonizomenos, which means striving. And it came from the realm of the wrestling world in the wrestling games in Athens. My brothers and sisters, if you will be honest, discipleship is agony. It is the wrestling against your own fleshly worldly desires and then it is the wrestling of the fleshly and worldly desires of the person you're going to help and so Paul says you want to know what kind of work it is here's why we don't do disciple making it's exhausting it is the exhaustion and wrestling with your own soul to get on the right path and frame of mind and frame of heart to make disciples and go see your neighbor and go tell the gospel to your coworker and take the time to share with your spouse or your parent or grandparent or child that getting yourself moving and then once you encounter them, it's a whole other set of inertia. It's their inertia. And that's why Paul packed this verse He absolutely packed this verse with words that are power words. He says, it's a striving, but it's according to a power that's his, that's working in me dynamite. Paul is breaking this down in such a way as to say, this is what I'm working on. I'm coming against this wrestling force, but it's His strength that works powerfully in me. You see, that's the mystery. Is Christ in you? This is how you make disciples. is because Christ is in you. Now, my brothers and sisters and my friends who, who are not believers that are here, this is the challenge. This is a great spiritual war. This is a war for the souls of men and women and boys and girls in eternity. And this war is not lightly fault. It's not something you can simply give your spare time to. It has to be that which you devote your life to. Because the power of that moment of every day of doing this work, of wrestling your inertia, inertia, their inertia, the power is like coming up against someone so strong that they're going to wear you down to exhaustion. And you have to have a power inside of you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Isn't that good news? Now, if we're going to make disciples, and if we're going to do this well, I'm going to run all the way down to a prayer time. So just kind of skip over this. Here we go. And I'm just going to close with asking you to consider a time of prayer. Wes, I didn't even talk to you about closing, but all I want to ask you to do is pray about five things. And I'm going to walk you through that. And so let's begin by asking God through our Lord Jesus that we might desire to be the kind of disciple Jesus called, trained, and sent. Would you pray that you become a Matthew or a Luke or a Paul? Would you pray that you become the kind of disciple he would like you to be? That he would be pleased with? Would you just bow your head and pray that now? And as you pray, consider this scripture. The second thing I'd to ask you to pray for is that we might desire to humble ourselves to be discipled, admitting that we're not yet where we should be in our maturity. That we could literally go up to another person and say, I need help to get ready to stand before God. I'm not quite there. I need help. Here's a great passage of Scripture to go with that. third prayer. Ask God through our Lord Jesus, our Messiah, that we might desire to make disciples of all the nations, the kind of disciples described in the New Testament. Next, would you ask for one who would disciple you? Say, Lord, send somebody or let me go to someone who will help me get ready to stand before you. Humble yourself to ask to be discipled. And finally... Ask the Lord for someone to disciple. That you would take on the responsibility of helping someone get ready to stand before the Lord. Father, by your grace and mercy, we have looked into your word for help, to know your will, and you have revealed that you want everyone to know The wealth of the mystery of Christ. The work of the mystery of Christ in us. And the wonder of the mystery of Christ to be beheld in all of his glory. And Lord, we've learned that we're up against some forces that are beyond our strength. And we need the power of you working in us. So it is my prayer today that there would be a vast number of people here today that would say, Lord Jesus... Give me the power to be discipled, to make disciples, and the willingness to surrender myself to be your disciple. I pray this in Jesus.